Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. Imagine being able to navigate precisely without GPS or having a clock that can keep perfect time through maneuvering without a reference timekeeper or being able to monitor the entire radio frequency spectrum with a single antenna or having a radio that can monitor and detect any emission on the entire radio spectrum. You may have been with us last August when we introduced what may seem to be a pretty esoteric subject, quantum science and technologies. If you're really interested in the science behind these capabilities, we recommend you go back to that episode, episode 91. But today, we want to discuss the practical matter of how we get these capabilities from the laboratory and into the battle space. We all know we are in a race against time when it comes to modernizing our force and addressing key capability gaps. Let's face it. Our ability to do precise position, navigation, and timing is a major concern. Given both how critical PNT is to America's advantage and China's determination to take down our GPS constellation, or consider their focus on denying us use of the radio frequency spectrum. Also, imagine if quantum technologies could re-secure those advantages. What's amazing is, these quantum technologies are actually closer than you might imagine. That said, They're not available to install on operation systems today, so this begs the question, how do we take quantum from the laboratory to the battle space? And that is what we're discussing on today's episode. Today, we have Heather Penny from the Mitchell team, and we also have retired Major General Cameron Holt. General Holt is an acquisition professional, finishing his career as a Deputy Assistant Secretary for Contracting. But regardless of whatever title he has at any given moment, he is a warrior at heart who cares about getting capabilities to our warfighters so they can get the mission done and come home safe. We also have Paul Stimmers, a federal policy lawyer and lobbyist who focuses on advanced technologies, including quantum, and he's the founder of the Quantum Industrial Coalition. Well, thank you all for being here today. Heather, I am really excited to get started with hearing about what you've been doing with this work in quantum. Thanks so much. Like, you know, I've been working on uh, quantum, this quantum project for about a year, and I'm excited to talk about what we've been uncovering. Awesome. And General Holt, sir, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks very much. And of course, Paul, really appreciate your insights. Thank you. Happy to be here. All right, Lucky, let's just dive right in. I'd like you to set the stage. So Give us what is at stake here. Well, first, let's start with what the problem set is, right? I mean, we have a number of of foundational technologies like GPS, um, uh, precision guided munitions that we rely upon to be effective as the Department of the Air Force. But the challenge is, as we know, our adversary understand well what makes us so good. And so they are targeting their capabilities against us, which is creating some significant uh, vulnerability gaps. And if we expect our uh, young airmen to go into bad guy land, execute their mission safely, successfully and come home safely, we need to make sure that we are mitigating those vulnerabilities. 
what's exciting about quantum is this, you know, magical science that we maybe learned about in uh, high school physics 101 that just seemed like it was so far out. Those capabilities are really near term. They're not plug and play just yet. Really what it's going to take is going to take the funding, the resourcing and the program so that we can integrate them into our weapon system. But this is not 10 years out. This is much closer. This could be three to five years out. And as we know, AMC has actually already done a quantum demonstration for navigation, just to show you sort of how mature this is. So what does this mean for us? This means that we are on the verge of quantum enabled warfare. But the key is, and this is what was really kind of surprising to me as I went through this project, was realizing that the quantum industry, period, dot, is really so small, it's so nascent. And if we want to scale this so that we can have a quantum clock or a quantum um, inertial system or anything like that at scale in, in integrated into our weapon systems, we are going to have to build up the defense industry, the quantum industry. And that is really where my focus is. Cameron, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Um, yeah, sure. <clears throat> so, yeah, it's uh, quantum enabled warfare is kind of a term that um, Heather and I have thrown around, um, but it's really important to unpack that a little bit. I think uh, when you say the word quantum, a lot of people think of quantum computing and they think of, well, this is at least 10 years out, maybe longer. And several members of, of the government and even in the military uh, that really don't have any idea how to write requirements against a quantum technology today, think of it as something that the private sector exclusively can lead and that something that the, the private capital will invest in. And it's okay to just wait. And in fact, um, what Heather is sharing about some of these technologies being um, operational in the next three to five years, not just at, at really inane type of use cases, but such things as precision navigation and timing. Um, just one example where GPS, of course, most people would understand that, but we're now entering an age, at least on the military side, where GPS may very soon become obsolete because of our adversary's ability to deny it. And that is a very stark, um, close to the boat type of challenge that the military must lead in. I see quantum following two paths. One is commercial and one is military. I think the commercial path is already um, moving, but I don't see that the military path, at least from a United States perspective, is moving fast enough. Well, you know, sir, one of the things that I never really thought of about the need to basically stand up a whole new industry from, you know, the supply chain to production. And, and I don't want to speed through. I'd like to dive more into the, you know, as you call it, the quantum enabled warfare. And sir, since you introduced the topic, what does quantum enabled warfare look like and why does it matter so much? Yeah. So it's a great question. If you could, if I could just kind of do a little storytelling, if you could imagine, and again, I'm not trying to scare anybody, but if you could imagine the worst uh, happening where World War III breaks out and the principal actors are China and the United States, we think of warfare writ large in the U.S. as something that is kinetic, something where you're not, when war breaks out, there's certainly going to be explosions. Uh, CNN will break into the normal scheduled programming and say the war has started because of some explosion somewhere in the world. 
That is not what World War III will look like at all. And in fact, the first seven to 10 days of all-out war breaking out could be silent. And what I mean by that is the two new high grounds of warfare are space and cyber. And whatever happens in space and cyber in the first seven to 10 days, and the capabilities that are either enabled or disabled on either side could very well determine the rest of the war throughout the rest of the domains. Quantum technology is a game changer that puts one or the other at, at a significant advantage and the other at a significant disadvantage in that critical first seven to 10 days. If you could imagine emerging from that first silent seven to 10 days of that war, crippled with the inability to communicate, the inability to locate friendly forces or adversary forces, the inability to do precision navigation and timing across the spectrum of all the other domains, that is the future that awaits the one who doesn't take quantum technology seriously. On the other hand, for the adversary that has quantum-enabled technologies throughout precision navigation and timing and sensing and RF communications, not to even say anything about quantum computing, that adversary will be at a very significant advantage throughout the rest of that conflict. And frankly, our unalienable rights are on the line in that conflict. And so we talk a lot about artificial intelligence these days, and, and as, as we should, but quantum-enabled technologies and the infrastructure and the complementary capabilities and manufacturing that is needed, it, it really does take a whole-of-government approach and very determined investments that are very targeted. So General Holt talked a lot about those first days and how they won't necessarily be kinetic, but let me focus on some of the traditional things that we need to do to close kill chains uh, either kinetically or non-kinetically, but I really am kind of focused on the kinetic piece and how quantum can play into that, right? So General Holt mentioned uh, position navigation and timing's actually a really interesting thing that quantum-enabled devices could exploit far beyond just knowing where we're at, right? So that timing piece is essential for understanding and being able to create precision within our position, within where we are in space. And so I'm not, you know, I don't want to underplay how important timing can be there. But timing can also do a lot of really interesting things when it comes to electronic warfare, when it comes to communications. Quantum can do a lot of interesting things in shifting where our traditional sensors are and really putting them into a place where, based off of the physics, right now there's no way for an adversary to be able to counter that from the RF side. So the radio frequency side, consider an antenna of super small in terms of swap C and, and so forth, an antenna that could receive across the entire spectrum simultaneously. So that could really be a game changer when it comes to any kind of, of weapon system, major weapon system, because we no longer have to size the antenna in order to be able to match the wavelength and to be able to sense across that entire spectrum. So quick little story going back in time to World War II, when Britain was building um, chain home, the radars that defended during the Battle of Britain. So Germany suspected that the Brits were developing this technology. So they flew basically um, their version of an RF sensor aircraft to do ISR up and down the channel there, but they picked the wrong spectrum 
to listen to. So they totally missed the emissions from Chain Home. And they're like, yep, nope, Britain doesn't have any of this. So that's part of what is really exciting about what quantum can do from an operational perspective. Quantum is something that warfighters need to be aware of. They need to be thinking about what if, how could I apply this? Because it will be a game changer for how they operate in combat. Heather, I absolutely get it. And, you know, winning the quantum race is going to be a key component in winning pure conflict in the future. So, Paul, where are we in terms of being able to field these quantum technologies? I mean, I hear all the time about how the U.S. is leading in quantum research, but, you know, that's a lot different from integrating these capabilities on a bomber, fighter, or a satellite. Thank you. Uh, absolutely. And we are definitely working hard to commercialize all of this. Uh, but there are a number of challenges that need to be addressed. Certainly on the on the computing side, uh, getting to a point where we have a useful quantum computer and, and a computer that can do things that a classical computer can't simulate is, is a major challenge. On the sensor side and, and the timing side, it really is about ruggedizing, miniaturizing, optimizing for swap C. And those are things that are underway and we're making progress on. It really requires a strong customer signal from the Defense Department to further incentivize that development within the industry. You know, it's like, again, what Paul said about compute and that we're seeing the commercial industry really invest heavily in quantum computing. From my assessment and the research that we did, quantum computing for something that is a realistic, pragmatic, can solve the problems that we ask is probably still maybe about a decade away. There are different ways that you can do compute, but people need to understand that quantum computing is not just a super fast supercomputer. A quantum computer is actually um, a very sophisticated and highly specialized machine that is optimized for certain types of problem sets. So um, that's gonna be uh, paper number two in our series here on quantum. So folks, uh, please reach out, uh, download that so you can get yourself smart on uh, quantum computers. But that's important to understand because we're not going to be replacing traditional binary, you know, zeros and ones computers, classical computers with quantum computers. We're going to optimize both the computer, the type of quantum that it uses for the kind of problem set that we needed to do. But there are a lot of commercial applications for this. And so the civilian industry, the commercial industry is making these investments. So think IBM's, the Google's, the Microsoft's and so forth. The nearer term quantum capabilities that the military is interested in, that we could see fielded, you know, in pragmatic ways, early min viable type products, but actually field and integrated onto weapon systems in less than five years, these are typically more military specific type capabilities. And so this is why what Paul is saying about the need for DOD to invest in what they need is so crucial. So take, for example, General Minahan with AMC's magnetometry for navigation demonstration they did during Northern Edge this past year. So they took a C-130 and they put on a quantum magnetometer, so senses the magnetic field of the Earth. So you have to have a, a, a magnetic map of the Earth to begin with, but it can sense that magnetic field because it is so sensitive. I mean, think about these quantum particles. They are really sensitive, which means that in addition to sensing the magnetic field of the Earth, it was also sensing all of the magnetic EMS, you know, all of that interference 
from the aircraft itself, from the magnetic noise generated from the engines to the magnetic noise that's generated from the um, avionics up in the cockpit. And so part of the challenge of integrating these quantum capabilities onto major weapon systems is going to be nulling out, for example, some of that magnetic noise. So another piece that was really important about what they did in the integration was not only demonstrate a rugged enough magnetometer that could fly around on a C-130 and anyone who's like, you know, flown in anywhere in a Herc for quite a while, you know, it's not exactly a smooth sailing. <laughs> At least that's what my bum's telling me. <laughs> it was pretty sore after, after long hours on that. So not only is it the, um, the ruggedness of the magnetometer, but it's everything else that we need to do to integrate these capabilities onto our weapon systems that we need to focus on as well. So Heather, all that makes sense, but you know, if these quantum technologies are within reach, you know, not the proverbial 10 or five years away, but actually on the verge of being fieldable, what's the challenge here? Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of why I brought up the Northern Edge um, demonstration, you know, it's kind of experiment to see like, okay, is this thing going to work? So first of all, you need to have a weapon system so that you can give design engineers something to aim at, right? This is not off-the-shelf technology where you're just going to, it's like a USB stick, you know, you pull it, you buy it at Target and you throw it in your computer and you're good to go. This is something that's going to have to be specific for each form, fit, and function in each weapon system. So there'll be an element that um, will be common across those based off of what its function will be, but it will also need to be specialized based off of what weapon system is going to be integrated onto. So there's that piece. But here's the really important piece, and this gets back to what General Holt and what Paul were both saying, is that we don't have a quantum industry. Like this, the ability to scale, unlike, you know, like munitions, um, you know, like aircraft, where we have an established industry, we've got prime contractors, we've got production plants, there's an established supply base, there's sub-tier suppliers, they can build all the parts and pieces. That is really still very nascent for the quantum industry. So even if we wanted to go hit go, we don't have the industry to be able to build the widgets that we need. So that's really what the big challenge is here is that we need to cultivate the defense industry for quantum capabilities. But doing that is going to be really expensive. It's going to be very similar to the challenge that we saw with semiconductors. Yeah, and if I could comment on that as well, um, <clears throat> this is uh, General Holt. Yeah, Heather brought up a good point in the analogy between uh, traditional computing and quantum computing, that they're not the same thing. And many casual observers pro probably think it is the same thing. It's important to understand that, that it is so different that there is no infrastructure or industry to support it. And so as we look at not just quantum itself or the use cases itself, but the key supporting technologies like lasers and dilution chambers and control electronics and ultra high vacuum cells and, and a number of manufacturing uh, techniques and so forth. Uh, this really is very much so analogous to the 1970s and the semiconductor standup. It's a whole new way of thinking and it's gonna require a lot of companion technologies. So it's not something, particularly on the military side, that we can afford to just put our toe on the water on. And as we shared with quantum-enabled warfare, the challenge of being second place on this one is not something we want to face as a nation. And so we really do have to get started. I think that there's a growing recognition around the world about this, almost creating a, a technology race, if you will. 
And I'm sad to say that China is by far in the lead by about 14 times in terms of the investment uh, required. You know, General Holt, I'm so glad you mentioned China because when people assess who's leading in quantum, like you take a look at like McKinsey studies and so forth, the way they do that is they just count research papers and they count the number of times research papers have been um, referenced in other research papers, right? And so if you measure it by that, the U.S. is generally leading in every category with the exception of communication networking, where we see China leading in communication networking. So for listeners out there, China is actually doing some really interesting things when it comes to quantum communication. It's, for example, beaming up qubits uh, from Earth to space and so forth. Now, when you take a look at that from a military perspective, we go, yeah, that's cute, but there's a lot of pragmatic application questions that leave me um, with personal doubts regarding, you know, okay, that's a cool science project, but... um, it's really more a stunt. It's not something that I'm going to be doing in operational combat. Let me tell you what is important about that is that there's a lot of real hardcore engineering challenges that go into that quantum stunt. And so what China is actually able to do is they're working through a lot of the classical problem sets as well as a lot of the quantum problems to be able to execute um, what they're doing with the MISIA satellite. So I don't want to downplay too much what they're doing with their quantum key distribution and their communication networks because they're learning really important lessons, maybe not for that specific application, but in other ways. So in, in 2018, Congress passed the National Quantum Initiative Act, which was designed to be the civilian approach to federal quantum research and development. It coordinates the efforts of the National Science Foundation, NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, and the Department of Energy, which has our civil supercomputing capabilities. It combined those three efforts under a National Quantum Coordination Office in the White House and set up a network of centers around the country, DOE and NSF centers, to conduct R&D in quantum computing. The bill was just is in the process of being reauthorized right now. House of Representatives has a, a reported version that it's considering on the floor soon. The Senate is is still working on its version. One of the things that the reauthorization is working on is pulling the Department of Defense in more to the National Quantum Initiative and increasing that coordination. The National Defense Authorization Act is also working to do that, so that there will be further integration between DOD and the civilian agencies. Already, DOD has been working with the civilian agencies, and there's been a a fair amount of back and forth, but the goal is to increase that in the second five years of the National Quantum Initiative. If I could hop in on that as well, some of the things that form the context around a military application include the resourcing process that we've used since the early 1960s, Uh, which is very slow in plotting and sometimes uh, as much as two to four years before funding is even identified for something. And the acquisition system, which I would include the requirement system, is also optimized to be what I would call a pull, a technology pull from industry. So it really constitutes um, over-specking of requirements where the Pentagon might 
develop a material solution or decide that a certain capability gap must have a, mil a material solution. And uh, some very smart young majors and lieutenant colonels in the Pentagon get busy to work in identifying what those requirements and capabilities are going to be in the details. And then that goes out to industry in the form of requests for proposal and so forth in, in weapon systems. And industry has been very good at delivering those specific technologies that are uh, specified in, in, in an RFP. What the Department of Defense has been horrible at is accepting a technology push from industry. And I think that's where we have a, a real need to do a roadmap and real understanding of, hey, guess what? These capabilities are different enough to where it's technology pull is not gonna be enough. There's gotta be a fast lane of technology push as well, where we start to define requirements, not at the platform level, but at the concept of operations level or the problem set level and allowing industry to answer that uh, according to the technology available. But either way that we do it, until we start actually requiring quantum technologies and precision navigation and timing and sensing and so forth in our weapon systems, uh, it won't create itself. Yes, there, there are efforts that are out there, to be fair. Um, there's the National Quantum Initiative. And I, I think in the 24 deliberations, there was a quantum accelerator, uh, but that got transitioned over to Defense Innovation Unit. And again, the Defense Innovation Unit um, has been kind of the fast lane of acquisition for years now, and it's been tremendously effective. The concern that I have, though, however, is DIU cannot do it alone. Each of the services that are responsible for organized, train, and equipped to present forces to the combatant commanders, that's where the requirements of these weapon systems come from. So regardless of whether Congress allocated the resources for execution by DIU or not, it's still going to take the services to start reaching beyond their grasp in terms of both a technology pull and a technology push in a very specific roadmap according to what is ready to go in, in the quantum industries. I think starting with precision navigation and timing, which I would argue we're already behind on. Yeah, a couple of quick points if I could. First of all, as the founder and executive director of the Quantum Industry Coalition, I would like to be able to, to come to the defense of what quantum industry we do have. It is small. You're absolutely right. And I wish I had more to point to because we are going to need to be able to scale. We are going to need to be able to develop and distribute product to the warfighter in a way that we can't right now. And that is a critically important issue. The global supply chain for quantum First of all, it is global. There are components and capabilities that we need to use within the supply chain that are only produced in a handful of locations around the world, if that, sometimes even just one or two places. Um, so it's a global, it's a fragile, and it's a small supply chain uh, that will need to be developed over time. And again, a very important way to do that is with clear requirements and clear support from the Defense Department. Turning to China and really great points there. One of the things that I tell leaders on, on Capitol Hill is that we're never going to out China, China. We're not going to be in a position where we're spending the amount of money that they're spending top down on quantum R&D. But the way that we're going to be able to compete with China is by sending that clear demand signal again, 
and incentivizing private investment in these companies to make up for the money that we're not spending as taxpayer funding. Now, we're still going to need to actually invest in quantum R&D. We're still going to need to invest in quantum deployment as a defense department, as a country. But that demand signal that unlocks private investment is going to be how we beat China. Absolutely. And, you know, we're always focused on the bleeding edge of the technology. We often don't step back and think about what constitutes the entire package. And Paul, if you want to hop in on that one, you can go oh, first. Sorry, I wasn't sure who. Uh, absolutely correct. It, it, it takes not just the cutting edge, but also the the, the packaging, the, the ability to, to put it in a form factor that is ruggedized, that has a, a swap C requirement that makes sense for the platform, and that the warfighter can use and can integrate into a broader, a broader system. And all of this is really important because we don't want to have duplicative efforts, right? We don't want to have everyone having to invent the wheel, especially because we're trying to accelerate where we are within the quantum um, quantum technologies in that competitive context. But regardless of all the activity and all the efforts that are going forward, in the end, we got to put our money where our mouth is. And we're not going to field meaningful quantum capabilities unless we have a program of record. Production is what really is going to drive advancement and investment. R&D is not going to be able to make that happen. Absolutely right. And, and that's why I'm a broken record on the idea of the demand signal from the federal government. We have to have something to, to, to shoot toward. We have to have something that is pulling things all the way from the, the lab bench to the warfighter. And I think we, we talked earlier about how DIU does great work, but relies on that customer within the department to, 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 to finish the job, to get it all the way out the door. And that's the kind of thing that we need to ensure is happening so that all of the preliminary effort, all the research and development, all of, the, all of that work doesn't go to waste. Yeah, and it's also critical to point out, you know, we've talked about um, accelerating investment and roadmaps and moving quickly to manufacturing and fielding of technology specifically for military applications. And all of that is all of that is valid, uh, but it's also valid to say, as Heather pointed out, that it really needs to be a program of record, and I would even argue a program office that is a cross-cutting program office where the quantum technologies. Um, and again, there are so very few engineers who understand that within the context of our existing weapon systems. But there is a great need to be disciplined in how we develop that technology and test it as well. So technology readiness level is something that is really important. And having one place where there's authority and accountability and understanding all the various applications and uh, advancing the technology readiness uh, so that they can be deployed to weapon systems and put into manufacturing environments rapidly without counting on every program office out there to be experts in quantum technology. Yeah, so that, that absolutely makes sense. And what other areas do you think um, more can be done? Well, I'll start that. <clears throat> I think, um, and again, I'm rewinding the clock a little bit, but we used to have wars that were funded by something called overseas contingency operations. I think a lot of people remember those days. And whatever your thought process is towards other contingency operations funding, which became unpopular to many, it, it did serve a purpose. And the purpose was that 
we needed to have a budget that was separate from the defense budget itself so that those resources did not compete in the budget deliberations with healthcare or military pay or other realities and must pay bills within the department. And the point of doing that was to make sure that those resources were fenced such that our troops in harm's way always had the full resources available to them to fight and win America's wars. As we start to think towards 21st century warfare with artificial intelligence and quantum technologies on the rise, the rapid rise, um, I would actually almost favor a similar approach, uh, but maybe not the use of an other contingency operations account, which was primarily focused on readiness um, and actually supporting uh, ongoing operations overseas. I would actually look at really um, creating a Defense Production Act Title III investment line where the money is not micromanaged on the front end, but is managed aggressively by Congress and overseen by Congress and how it's distributed. Um, and then what is done with that money by program offices. So if you were to have a DPA Title III line that was separate from the Defense Department budget, I think that would be a game changer in terms of what is required to get after these major challenges in the defense industrial base, not just quantum technology, but quantum technology included in a way that is accountable and visible and transparent and demands um, action and results. Cameron, I love that recommendation because it really fundamentally gets down to the quantum industry, right? We often think that America is the arsenal of democracy, but it, we've seen through the last year with Ukraine and what's gone on with the Israel Hamas that our defense industrial base is very thin. We don't have the stockpiles. We don't have the manufacturing capacity to be able to do what our traditionally established uh, production lines. So when we're thinking of how do we start, stand up and build a brand new industrial base for this leading edge capability of quantum technologies, that's going to take something very different that, like you said, we don't want to have competing with the traditional priorities of the services. When I think about the uh, quantum industrial base, I kind of think of them in terms of four main communities, right? We've got the labs and the universities, which are doing all of the R&D. You've got the big ID and uh, IT and computing companies, right? The Googles, Microsofts, and so forth, that are really pursuing uh, quantum compute. You've got the defense primes, which one of their main values is not only do they have a tremendous amount of uh, capital available for IRAD, but they understand you know, the warfighter needs. At the same time, they also understand their business models very well, and they're not going to build or pursue something unless they see a production program of record in the near future. And then we have all these small startups, which usually actually come out of the laboratories and universities. You have wicked smart, crazy intelligent quantum physicists and engineers and so forth that are, you know, taking that bleeding edge technology and going, what can we do with this? And as they begin to think of those applications, they spin out from their labs in the universities, they spin out these small startups. Now, for a long time, the defense industry has been infatuated with Silicon Valley and VCs and you know all this capital and angel investors and so forth. Here's the problem, is that even as these small startups are being funded by venture capitalists, there is a desynchronization. So let me just tell you, the speed of revenue, the speed of return and the percentage of return VC companies that are making these 
big investments in quantum startups, that is not at all on the same pace of DOD. We all know that DOD moves at the speed of glaciers. And so we're not, we're seeing the, these venture capitalists get very frustrated and, um, we're, and we're seeing also their money potentially beginning to dry up. It's not quite there yet, but we are on the verge and we need to be very careful of that because we're at such a unique inflection point. As Paul said earlier, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. I mean, this technology is pretty phenomenal and these small startups are moving fast. So we need to be able to seize the opportunity. And that's why I think what General Holt mentioned about a production act, a defensive production act could be a really interesting way to crack this nut. Yeah, so there are examples where our allies are starting to do something very akin to what I'm recommending there. In fact, uh, my understanding is that the United Kingdom just a couple of months ago, actually, started with a national strategy towards quantum. And just four to five months later, they have allocated billions of pounds towards that effort and have started to release requests for proposal and actually award contracts. If you could imagine in a period of four to five months that happening in any government organization, uh, but there is recognition of that, not just in the UK, but also in Australia. And the AUKUS um, venue and international agreement, I think offers a tremendous amount of opportunity for there to be cooperation for what um, is clearly, as Paul said, a global supply chain challenge. And I think um, we could take, we could learn a lot from our allies in moving so quickly. Well, Paul, you represent a coalition of quantum industry, and I'd love to hear your take on this perspective. Thank you. Well, I think it's absolutely true that the industry is moving faster than the Defense Department, and that's been a challenge in a, a number of respects. In quantum, it's as true as anywhere else, that the issue is that the dollar amounts are small, they are distant, and they are speculative. Small in that when you're dealing with SBIR, for example, they're just not large amounts of money. Distant in that if you start in, well, right now, in, in December, working on appropriated funding, you might get funding not this coming spring, but the following spring spring of 2025 and then it's speculative in that as we are currently seeing there's no guarantee that the money will actually actually come through that congress will actually appropriate for the defense department and that there might be a, a continuing resolution or something similar so it is a very frustrating environment for vc backed companies and for private funders to try and, and and engage and so anything that the defense department can do to speed up its its acquisition, to make it more worthwhile in terms of the dollar amounts, and to make it more likely to come to fruition at any given point is helpful. Now, I, I'm very well aware that I've put on the Defense Department a problem that is largely due to Congress, and, and there's limits to how much that can be solved. But I do think, and the Defense Production Act may be a, a, a potential solution, I do think there are ways to address each of those. And the primary thing to do is just speed up the acquisition process to the maximum extent possible. There's a great book that's written, maybe a lot of people have read it, called Freedom's Forge, that really details how America energized its industrial base uh, to great effect during World War II um, when a national challenge was apparent to all. Uh, I am one that believes that 
adversaries like China have intentionally stayed below the radar screen. They've intentionally not provoked us militarily precisely to keep us all asleep. Uh, but I believe that given where we are with all these advanced technologies to include quantum technologies, we are in a very similar situation that we must get behind a very similar Freedoms Forge approach. And quantum technology is one of those game changers that we just can't afford to come in second place on. I'm very glad you mentioned Freedoms Forge, written by our good friend Arthur Herman at the Hudson Institute, who has been himself a leader on quantum technology and actually convened one of the first quantum policy conferences in Washington, D.C. in 2018. A great book, very important. So, Lucky, is OSD doing anything to support quantum? So, yes, they are. I mean, first of all, we do have um, individuals and uh, like a small cadre of folks uh, within uh, OSD where they are specifically focusing on quantum. And they also premiered in the FY24 presidential budget request a new line item for the Quantum Acceleration Transition Program of Record. But note that this was primarily about research and development and, importantly, though, supply chain investment. What we've seen, though, within the NDAA is that the Quantum Acceleration Transition Program, which was actually still pretty small, $75 million uh, for this year, $100 million in the out years, it's been really zeroed out. And as uh, General Holt mentioned, the NDAA is planning to stand up this pilot program on near-term quantum computing applications within the Defense Innovation Unit. So um, we ha don't see the money that's behind that just yet, but that's in Section 231 of, of this year's of the FY24 NDAA. And we'll see how that, I think we need to take a sort of sit and see on what's going to happen there. General Holt, anything more you, you think we need to add on that? No, I don't. Uh, well, actually, there is, um, in OSD research and engineering, there is a a point of contact for quantum technologies. And so I think Heidi Shu recognizes the importance. However, my criticism would be that there, there has not been to date a lot of funding or acquisition um, activity behind that. So I think they're in, a, they're in a great starting place, but there has to be some concerted effort, not just towards quantum computing, as we've talked about many times already, but really putting things into the program of record and program office level where we're actually making investments and doing the systems engineering process, testing capabilities, manufacturing them and fielding them. The Space Force, for example, offers an enormous opportunity to get after this immediately. There are companies out there like Inflection and others that are ready right now to deliver 19-inch rack-mountable precision navigation and timing, not even in a way that's more expensive than the legacy. In fact, that's less expensive than the legacy because some of those quantum clocks can replace what is two clocks in cesium and maser technologies of the past. It is true, though, that those kinds of new applications have to be put through the systems engineering rigor, the testing rigor, before we can have confidence to replace the large clocks at Shriver Air Force Base or the Naval Observatory or other places. The exciting part, however, is that if we did have that kind of concerted investment, I think these companies could rapidly not only install, field, uh, and test, 
but also miniaturize, which is extraordinarily important to this notion of quantum-enabled warfare, where we could have, we could see the same kind of precision or many times better precision than the Naval Observatory clock in a GPS-denied environment at mounted levels, and, and read that to be spacecraft mountable, or even down to the card size where you would have that kind of capability in a key fob. If you could even imagine what kind of game changer that might be to have that kind of swap C and the ability to install that in a variety of military capabilities across the spectrum um, and in all domains, that is what we need to get after now. Yeah, that whole notion of having that miniaturized quantum clock, quantum timing, and what that could do for our communications, for electronic protection, electronic attack, and so forth is just, it, it, there are so many opportunities there. And, and I think it's important to understand that it, although we already have some identified use cases, the Air Force does need to uh, map out what those use cases are with greater rigor and pursue them. And also, uh, there are so many applications that we haven't even thought of yet, and we won't until we really begin to mature these quantum technologies. Well, like always, with such interesting topics, we're running short on time. So what are the major takeaways that you want listeners to have about quantum science and technologies? So thanks very much. It's been a great podcast, and thank you to all my colleagues. Let me just start where I began, which is quantum-enabled warfare. We've got to win the race to quantum-enabled warfare. It is, it's a great thing that the commercial technology sector is moving out with quantum technologies, and our allies are moving out and investing in civilian use cases and so forth. But the devastation of second place in quantum-enabled warfare across all the domains, not just cyber and space, as Heather pointed out, but also in kinetic applications across uh, um, all domains, uh, it, it, it's just too, um, it's too important to let um, the private sector lead. And so we've got to move out. I think it starts with a funding source. Um, I proposed a DPA Title III line that does not compete with the Defense Department budget, but there are several ways um, other than that to, to get after this. But I, I think the challenge is We've got to do it in a way that doesn't micromanage the funding because there is nobody that can actually overspec requirements for quantum because it is such a new area and requires investment at all levels to include companion technologies and the supply chain globally. And so if it starts with funding and then the acquisition approach, um, although I love DIU and, and what they um, are able to do, I think they're a great mechanism for acquisition. I still think the services and the combatant commands need to very clearly identify the applications, perhaps not at the platform level alone, but at the CONOPS or operational imperative level. And then finally, I believe that we've got to take an approach that inserts some rigor and some timelines and accountability and transparency. And to me, that means standing up a program office for quantum technologies and a timeline where Congress can oversee and there is transparency and accountability in actually deploying these technologies according to the readiness of the technology itself. I absolutely agree that quantum has the potential to be radically disruptive from a warfighting uh, perspective. And I think that it's vital that we lead on all fronts related to quantum. 
The quantum industry, both domestically and among our allies, is our secret weapon in that regard. But it's imperative that we have the demand signal, the outreach from the potential customer to tell us what to build, how to build it, where to build it, and when to build it, and to provide that demand signal that will unlock the private investment that will get it done. You know, Slick, so for takeaways, what I'd like to leave our, our listeners with is one, quantum is real and quantum is near term. It's not something that we're continuously looking out to the future for. So we need to get real about quantum because those quantum technologies are real. Um, the second thing is, if we want to be able to deliver them to the warfighter, we need to build up the industrial base and we cannot rely on venture capitalists, angel investors in the commercial industry to do that because the things that the warfighter needs don't really have commercial civilian applications. So the Defense Department um, and the government is going to have to make those investments because again, the quantum industrial base is not going to be inexpensive to build up. It's going to be a lot more like the semiconductor chip fabrication plants. So we need to be willing to make those investments because it is a national strategic imperative. For the Air Force and for the other services, we need to map out the use cases for where we think those near-term quantum uh, technologies are and how we can use them and then put them into experimentation just like AMC did. That was phenomenal because they gave engineers a way to be able to have a target for that form fit function and also how they were going to integrate that. How are they going to solve not just the ruggedness or the size and the miniaturization or the power, but also how are they going to do the integration? How do we create um, the interfaces between the quantum technology and the classical outputs of classical controls or integrate it with the other classical capabilities to improve our overall um, operations? And then what that gets to is the supply chain. Once we're able to, to do that experimentation, establish a program of record, put our money where the mouth is, create that defense pull, that can allow us to then suss out that supply chain for the classical integration and all of the other hardware that isn't about the subatomic particles. You know, um, it's about things like the, um, the vacuums, the lasers and so forth. So that's, I mean, that's kind of a little, what I would want our, our listeners to think about is it's real. We got to build the industrial base. We got to know what to use it for. We got to experiment with it and then we got to buy it. Yeah, Heather, I could not agree with you more. And, you know, of course, when we first started this journey with episode 91 and your initial research, when I first heard of this, it really seemed like, you know, more like magic than something that the warfighters could be able to use operationally. But, you know, now it sounds like it really is going to be a key element of uh, what a war winning force looks like. So really appreciate all of your hard work on this. And General Holt and Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. And Lucky, it's always great to have a chat with you. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Lick. It's great to be able to wrap up this project, be able to bring our findings to our audience and to our listeners and our readers. And so much thank you to General Holt and to Paul for joining us here today. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. 
Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.